podcast one production. Jenny Cooney has been a part of Hollywood for 30 years, reporting on all the Aussie stars, from Hoags to the Hemsworths, Hugh Jackman, Nicole Kidman, Margot Robbie and beyond. This is Aussies in Hollywood. You might not know his name, but it's likely you've seen at least one of the great films Stuart Beattie has written. Not only did he come up with the idea for the massive blockbuster franchise Pirates of the Caribbean while still in school in Australia, he also dreamed up collateral damage during a taxi ride in Sydney. Stuart invited me into his lovely home on a hilltop in Calabasas and we sat in his office, joined by his very cute dog Holly Rose, to talk about his amazing journey and how screenwriters don't always get the credit they deserve. Here's Stuart. Well, Stuart Beatty, um, welcome to Aussies in Hollywood. Thank you. I'm Thanks for having so me. I'm so excited to hear your story because you're sort of, you've been here a lot longer than the current wave too. So Yeah, I came over in uh, 92, end of 92. Wow. So I had done, uh, I'd done a year exchange at Oregon State University in 91. So I'd lived in America for a year and really loved it. Felt like I was in Hollywood, even up in Oregon. And uh, knew that I could live in America and I knew that, that that's where I had to be. Wow. So let's go back to your upbringing. You were Sydney born and raised, is that? No, I was born in Melbourne. Born in uh, Melbourne. Yeah, and then by the age of six, uh, I moved up to Sydney. Uh, my my mum was from Sydney, my dad was from Melbourne and my mum had tried Melbourne uh, for as long as she could stand it and then had to get back to Sydney to see the sun and uh, <laughs> be back with her family up there. So yeah, moved up to Sydney in uh, 1978 and uh, went to Knox Grammar for all 12 years. Wow. Yeah. So <laughs> you would have been with the same kids for 12 years. Yeah, basically, same kids. There were probably about a dozen of us lifers by the time we got to year 12. Yeah, good wow. bunch of guys, good blokes. I'm assuming you're all still good friends. Yeah, still good friends with a lot of them, actually. Uh, a lot of my high school friends, uh, you know, Facebook makes it so easy, but uh, they've all done such uh, interesting things and they're all over the world, which is great. So, you know, usually oh. wherever you go in the world, there's someone somewhere that you know from, you know, from school. <laughs> yeah. So what was your early experience like with film and television and, and the arts? What do you remember growing up in terms of your relationship with that? Well, I, I know um, I always wanted to be uh, an archaeologist when I was really little. That was my first thing. I liked it, the idea of digging up dinosaur bones like a lot of kids. Uh, but then when uh, I saw Star Wars, that really changed my life and changed my trajectory. And I fell in love with movies uh, from that point on. And then Raiders of the Lost Ark, which was an archaeologist in a movie, just sealed the deal. So um, had both those things. <laughs> so, yeah, so I remember just loving movies and being kind of the crazy movie guy as a kid. The, the guy would go see four movies in a day and think nothing of it. You know? Wow. Guy, a guy would rather go see a movie than sit in a pub and, you know, drink and smoke and shout to be heard, you know. I'd always be like, let's go to a movie. There's so-and-so's playing it, you know, down the street. Let's, it's more fun than this, you know. So I, I always loved films and people would always come to me and say, hey, should we see this film? What's this, you know, what's a good film to see? You know, I was like the local recommendation guy, all that <laughs> kind of stuff. Um, and just, but it wasn't until I was uh, 14 and uh, I watched Ghostbusters at a special screening uh, that I understood for the first time that you could actually have a career in film. It hadn't occurred to me before that. Uh, but my friend Damien Wilkinson, whose father, Peter Wilkinson, ran distribution for Hoyts down in uh, Sydney at the time, he uh, invited me to uh, yeah, like a special screening of Ghostbusters and it was the first time that I sat and stayed and watched the credits afterwards because I felt it was polite to wait till the lights come up because um, I'd been invited to this screening. And just watching all the names and the credits, I, I asked him, you know, who are all these people <laughs> that are listed after this film? He's like, well, they're the people that made the film. And I was like, oh, that's a career. And he's like, yeah, of course. <laughs> and uh, pretty much funny. from that moment on, I, I knew I wanted a career in, in uh, film and entertainment. Wow. So when did you actually figure out what you were going to do in film and entertainment? When did writing seem like the the path? Um. I always wanted to make films, very generally, just make films. And writing, to me, was a means of making films, 
no one just kind of lets you make a film uh, in Hollywood. You know, you've got to find a way in. And writing, uh, I, I always loved writing. Uh, I, I wrote a, like a 50-page novel when I was like 10 years old. Uh, I wrote another one in seventh grade, uh, a couple hundred pages, that one. Do you still have them? I don't actually, no. Um, well, I'd have to dig and look, but oh, I don't, I'm not could, sure. You could make them into movies now. Maybe, yeah, yeah. But I, I remember writing a lot and uh, and loving loving writing a lot. So it, it felt very natural just to start writing screenplays, uh, getting a hold of screenplays and, and just start writing because it seemed like that was a good way in. If I wrote a script that everyone liked, I could still be nobody and, you know, I would, you know, uh, get a job, you know, and because I knew absolutely no one in the film industry. Um, apart from my friend's dad, who was distributor, uh, <laughs> uh, I actually pitched him uh, Collateral, what became Collateral. That was my first pitch. And I wrote a little two-page treatment for it and everything. And I went in and pitched it, the whole movie to him in Sydney. I would have been about 18 or 19 or something. And uh, he sat there very patiently listening to the pitch. And at the end of it, he said, well, it's great, but unfortunately I'm a distributor. I don't, I don't buy things. <laughs> I just distribute the movies. And I was like, oh, well, thank you for listening. And he's like, you're welcome. <laughs> so, you know, again, just trying to understand the business. But he was the only person I knew in the business. Um, and so uh, that So Collateral there. is a movie that ended up being made with Tom Cruise and Jamie Foxx starring in it. Yeah, yeah, pretty wild. So you wild. had that idea... Way back then. Yeah, yeah. I remember um, it was the first time I ever took a cab by myself. I think I was 18. And uh, by the time the cabbie dropped me home, we were chatting like best friends. And I just had one of those weird, twisted, uh, you know, sick thoughts. Like, you know, I could be a homicidal maniac sitting back here. And you've got your back to me. And, you know, we're complete strangers. And, uh, you know, here we are talking like best friends, you know, and it's crazy. And that, if you think about it, you know, that uh, transaction between two strangers happens every time all over the world, every second, you know, two strangers getting together in a small space and trusting each other both implicitly yeah. with their lives, really. Yeah. And it happens every day. And so it just seemed to be a, a ripe setting for drama and uh, thought I could tell a cool story out of it. Then when did you find the first person that could do something about helping you with a writing career? <laughs> so that really came when I was in Oregon. Um, so I had, so, um, I, I had wanted to be a filmmaker coming out of high school. Uh, the one film school in, in Australia at the time was afters. And uh, you had to have a college degree and you had to be 22. Uh, just even apply to get into afters at that time. And so I was like, all right, I need a college degree. So I did uh, communications uh, at uh, Charles State University uh, Mitchell in Bathurst. Uh, they had a really great uh, uh, communications program out there. And uh, the idea was, uh, you know, my fallback job would be as a journalist. Um, uh, yeah, my parents said I had to have a, fall, had to have a fallback. <laughs> so that was to be a journalist. And uh, and I could, felt I could study film while I was at Mitchell. And they had a really good program out there. And they also had this uh, exchange program to Oregon State. And so I already kind of had my eye on America and knowing that I wanted to kind of be over here. So I got into Mitchell. Uh, I And at Mitchell, I started writing. I wrote the first draft of Collateral. And I wrote the first draft of another film, a Vietnam War film. And um, then I uh, got the exchange, went to Oregon. And in Oregon, I got the first books on, on screenwriting. And that, that was really my first instructor, really, was uh, uh, books that taught you how to write Sid Field and uh, yeah. all those guys. So read all those, started writing, wrote uh, more more drafts of Collateral, wrote Pirates of the Caribbean there, what was the first draft, what became Pirates of the Caribbean. It was called Quest of the Caribbean back then because I obviously didn't have the rights to Pirates of the Caribbean. Um, and then while I was at Oregon, uh, this woman uh, uh, came up to visit uh, from Los Angeles. Her name's Linda Hayes. And Linda, she was at UTS uh, she's Australian, Australian filmmaker, and she was at UTS, and she had the same exchange to Oregon State a few years before, and now she was in LA. She was actually going to USC Film School and wanted to be a film director, and so we met while she was up there, and then I ended up, uh, once I finished, I went back to Australia and finished my degree. Uh, to finish that degree, I had to do a six-week internship, and so I interned at her company back in Los Angeles, and so oh, that's wow. how I, I literally finished my degree in Los Angeles uh, in October of 92. 
and stayed uh, basically sleeping on the couch, you know, uh, there until I was able to get my own place and um, and uh, was writing all the time there and then went to uh, UCLA Extension. Uh, the UCLA had these great extension night classes basically in screenwriting and uh, a thousand bucks a semester and back then they gave me a five-year student visa because yeah come out to America I've it's fun. A lot of people got their <laughs> visas that way as yeah. a student. Yeah five years open-ended <laughs> go wherever you want you know just tell us where you are you know very very <laughs> lax um, and so I was studying more and more there and learning and writing all the time there and uh in that program, they have an award every year, the Diane Thomas Award. Uh, Diane Thomas uh, was a screenwriter who wrote Romancing the Stone and some other films, and she had written that script, I believe, in UCLA Extension. And then she was tragically uh, killed in a car crash. So they have this uh, award there every year. And so I won that award with a script that I developed in one of those classes, and that got me my first agent, and that script got me my first job. Wow. So you won that award from a UCLA Extension class yeah that, yeah uh, yeah it was uh it's like this the award they have every year and uh, back and then what was the script for it was a script called mayday and uh it was about uh a coast guard uh rescue swimmer there were four women in the coast guard that did it uh, at the time and it was about one of those women and uh and uh it was an action film uh based around her oh where's the fun. movie uh yeah never got made never got made a lot of them never got made uh, tried, got very close at times. Uh, just you know, it's a miracle every time a film gets made, and yeah, you know, the miracle is, didn't happen it? on that one. Yeah, <laughs> but the miracle did happen because it got you an agent, right? Well, yeah, it got me an agent. It got me, uh, it got me around that catch twenty two of needing an agent to get work and can't get work without an agent. So uh, I always recommend entering in screenwriting contests for new writers because. It's a way to have someone, you know, other than your mother saying that you can write a script yeah. and people pay attention to it. You know, obviously the more prestigious the award, the more people pay attention to it. Yeah. But uh, it's, it's always great to be an award-winning writer, you know. And your first couple of films that you wrote that did get produced, they were in Australia. Is that right? Was it The Protector? Oh, the protector! No, the protector was here. Oh, <laughs> and then Kick, I think, was yeah, um, Joey and Kick. Yeah, so the protector oh, is and Joey. Yeah, yeah the protect- kangaroo movie. Yeah, right. The protector was this little assignment I did for virtually no money. I just rewrote someone else's script, and uh, years later they made it. I had no idea they even made it, <laughs> but um, it's a very B-grade action movie. You know, I don't know. I've even seen the whole thing. Um, but it was work at the time. Yeah. It was $5,000 in my pocket and, you know, that was a lot of money and uh, kept me alive. Uh, but no, the, the first, uh, but after that, so yes, yeah, so I, I wrote uh, Kick uh, with Linda Hayes uh, to direct. Uh, it was actually called James at the time. It was about a, a Sydney-based uh, rugby-playing school captain who secretly is a, wants to be a ballet dancer. And uh, it was a world that I knew very, very well um because i grew up in that kind of a world um and so it eventually became this film kick yeah uh but that script uh village roadshow had tried to option and the deal hadn't worked out for whatever reason and so village said hey will you uh rewrite this script joey for us and joey was a small kids family movie thing uh basically about a joey that had been uh, you know, got separated from its mother and this boy trying to help him, help the Joey get back to it, its, its parents. Um, E.T. E. with a baby kangaroo, basically. <laughs> Wrote it in six weeks. We were in production, you know, two weeks after that. It was really quick. So that became the first uh, feature film that actually got released in theatres uh, that, that I'd written. And, uh, and then Kick came out shortly after that. But, yeah, they were both – those two were both made down in Australia. Wow. So uh, Pirates came out before Collateral. Obviously, you made you wrote Collateral first. Tell us the journey of Pirates. Yeah, well, Pirates really began in Oregon State in 1991. Um, I was hanging out for the summer with a friend of mine uh, on campus and we were like, you know, we should write a film together and a film that, you know, hasn't been done in a while. What kind of film hasn't been done in a while? And we both kind of said at the same time, a pirate movie hadn't been done in a while. You know, good pirate movie. And so we came up with this whole story and we called it Quest of the Caribbean and we 
decided to put all the scenes from the Disneyland ride in the film, you know, because we thought, well, the only people that could ever make this is Disney uh, because they have that ride and that title. And, uh, you know, pirate movies are notoriously expensive. They're on the water. Um, and that's the reason why no one had done one in so long, you know. So I wrote this script, Quest of the Caribbean, and uh, kept submitting it to Disney probably for the next 10 years uh, through Touchstone uh, at the time, wow. uh, which was their kind of genre arm. And they kept rejecting it every year. <laughs> I keep sending it every year. And then one day uh, the chairman of Disney, Dick Cook, um, had the idea to make three movies out of three rides. And it was Haunted Mansion, Country Bears, and Pirates. And so when that filtered down to the executives, they were like, oh, who's that Australian guy who keeps sending us that <laughs> script for Pirates? Uh, we'll call him up. And so they called me up and I was like, yes, I want, I've want. i been asking for 10 years. <laughs> and they're like, all right, all right, but look, we have a story and we, we want to... Uh, and they, they basically pitched it as... Um, so they didn't use my script in the end. They, they pitched me a story, but they knew I liked that world. Um, and the, the pitch was we want a Luke Skywalker-type pirate to team up with a Han Solo-type pirate to rescue a Princess Leia-type from a Darth Vader-type pirate. <laughs> and I was like, okay, so Star Wars with pirates. And they're like, no, 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 no. <laughs> so, hey, that was the movie that changed your life, so yeah, that's right. not a bad... Right, right, exactly. It was, it was, it was a fun one uh, for me on many levels in that sense. So, yeah, so uh, wrote that. Uh, the first draft of that got greenlit. Um, and then uh, Disney realised that Jerry Bruckheimer was developing another pirate movie for them at the time. And so they said to Jerry, look, we want to kick you off that one, shut that one down and have you jump onto this and make this one. And Jerry, being the smart producer that he is, said, sure. <laughs> and um, and then he brought Johnny Depp on. I did another draft for Johnny and uh, and then uh, and they were off. They were off to the races making that. Yeah. So... What was the collaboration like? You'd been in this world for 10 years trying to make a movie about pirates. Suddenly it was a Disney film, Jerry Brockheimer, Johnny Depp. How did you navigate that world? What was that like as a writer? Uh, it's, it's really been the same on every, every job. I mean, it, it, it's always a, draw, a joy to see it come true, uh, especially something like Pirates, which I'd been you know, shouting from the rooftops for so many years, uh, to see that come to life. The way it did, especially, and to see how it was embraced by audiences all over the world, and uh, and particularly Jack Sparrow has been embraced by people all over the world. It's uh, it's really, yeah, you know, it's surreal. You know, it's surreal to see kids walking around in Halloween dressed up as a character that I created. You know, <laughs> or uh, you know, we had, we had a a pirate party here for my kids when they were young, and one of the guys was dressed up as Jack Sparrow. You know, it's just become this kind of uh, crazy cultural figure. And uh, how much of yeah, Jack Sparrow was already on the page, and how much did Johnny Depp inform it? Well, you know, everything, everything he says and did, and you know, everything, all of that was on the page. You know, the, the the thing that Johnny did was was to kind of put this uh, kind of Keith Richards spin on it, and this is kind of this kind of bizarre take that no one had ever actually you know thought about before and were and and, and you know the executives were quite horrified by it that's what <laughs> i heard yeah yeah they were um they were ready to fire him yeah but uh look you know in their defense they were seeing dailies so they were getting three hours of jack sparrow and nothing else at a time you know <laughs> and you know once it's you know weaved in you know, throughout a film it's it's not full-on like that and uh so once they saw it all together they realized oh, i was actually great and uh he ended up being Were you on the set the whole time? Or oh, around? no. No, that was off in the Caribbean. No, I, I went down to the set when it was in Burbank. But um, it wasn't uh, – they didn't need me, you know. So I was working on other things. So you did get to go down there. What was your first reaction when you – Oh, it was just wild, you know. I was down at the, you know, the big cave at the end of it, you know, with all the, the gold doubloons spread everywhere and uh, Jeffrey Rush, Johnny Depp. I mean, all these pirates all over the place. It was – just you know phenomenal um just you know again one of those surreal pinch me moments where you know something you've been going on about for uh, was like 11 years 12 years (laughs) at the time you know there it is in the flesh and it just it shows the power of creation if you think it it can be yeah and jeffrey rush um it was also it changed his career too as an aussie another aussie who yeah benefited did you guys meet on that film and um yeah i mean brief i wouldn't really you know hang out or anything um but briefly met yeah yeah he was working 
So that, <laughs> it's a weird place for a writer to be, especially when there's no writing to be done. You know, it's just you're just kind of a third wheel. Uh, well, these days, I guess, with smaller movies, they like to have the writer around all the time in case somebody decides they want to change something or rewrite it. Right? Yeah, it depends on the director, really, and if they like the lock script and you don't don't you know don't change it, or they're like you know best idea wins on the day. You know, so. I've had you know, the, all experiences with directors, so um, it's really just more stuff to them what they like, yeah. And so then you, while you were waiting for that to come out, was Collateral already in the works, or did that everything happen after Pirates came out? Yeah, um, so so Collateral happened before Pirates. That was Collateral was ninety nine. I sold that as a pitch uh, initially to HBO as uh, like a Friday night thriller and then I wrote it for them and then they passed and it was dead and then I fought to get a meeting at DreamWorks um, because it was Spielberg's company and I loved Razor Lost Ark and uh, finally after they cancelled the meeting like three or four times I finally went in and uh, pitched it to them there. They read it that weekend and bought it. And um, Who did you pitch to? An executive named Mark Hames uh, at DreamWorks. He's uh, a great bloke, a uh, smart guy. And he very uh, smart, obviously. Very smart, yes, very smart, yeah. And uh, so then I, I did about six months more work on it, and then it just sat for three years while you know virtually every director and actor in town came on, came off, came on, came off, and you know the, the miracle never happened. The 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 stars aligning and the the right combination of two actors and director never actually hit at the one point, and. Uh, so that was going on the whole time while I was doing Pirates. And then Pirates went into production. And then um, as Pirates was in production, uh, they were getting, they were at the point where they were about to like bring on a, a comedy writer and turn it into like a Jack Black comedy, you know. And I had done like a little very, very scaled down $2 million version of it. And I was like, let me go make this. I'll just, I'll rent a cab, <laughs> you know, I'll pay for it. Just give me two actors and I'll go do it. And, uh, and right at that point, um, Russell Crowe had a film that fell apart uh, and he suddenly had an opening in his schedule. And so we sent it to Russell and uh, he read it, loved it, gave it to Michael Mann, who he'd done The Insider with. Michael read it, loved it. And then he gave it to, to Jamie. And then uh, Russell's window closed as they were doing all the negotiations and deals. And then, uh, like on the same day, Russell dropped out. Tom Cruise came on. So it was oh my you know, goodness. call in the morning. Russell's out. The film's dead. <laughs> call in the afternoon. Tom's on. <laughs> we're back on. You know. And, so uh, Collateral could have been a Russell Crowe, Jamie Fox movie. Yeah, huh? that's what it was initially. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think I think what really happened in the end was. Uh, Michael wanted to shoot. Things were going on too long, and 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 Michael is notorious for going over schedule. And Russell had a baby on the way, and he, he didn't want to miss the birth of his baby. Fair enough. Yeah. Um. And and you know he's done okay. Anyway, he's done fine. Yeah. And <laughs> and, I, and I, I'm pretty sure, as I recall, that uh, Michael did go way past the due, the the birth of his son. So it was the right call for him to make. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. So, uh, but no, but then Tom came on, and Tom was amazing, and uh, yeah. That, that film really changed. Well, what was important about Collateral really for me was the three years that it sat not getting made, it became a script that people passed around a lot. So all the development executives in town had, you know, said, oh, you got to read this, you got to read this, you got to read this. And so that became a calling card for me and wow. uh, a lot of people wanted to hire me based on that script that they had read. And uh, I got a lot of work uh, in the meantime while that was circulating. And um, and I used to think, oh, you know, if, even if the film gets made and the film sucks, at least people will know they like the script. <laughs> you know, so, uh, but then the film turned out really well and, and people really liked the film and responded to it. So it was a That must a have been a really end. great feeling yeah. to, to actually finally get it made and like Pirates, yeah. see everybody respond to it. Yeah, especially something like, because uh, especially Collateral was, you know, birthed in my head. You know, there was nothing else, you know, just a crazy idea I had that, uh, like, if that if I had the idea in, God, 90, and it came out in 2003, so 13 years later, 14 years later or something, yeah. Wow. Wild. <laughs> so the life of a writer, is, is it a combination of your own ideas, being a writer for hire, 
is is does I mean you can't speak for other writers, but is that sort of if you want to do that professionally, you have to be open to everybody's ideas? Yeah, look, I mean, everyone's different. For me, it's uh, best story wins. You know, it doesn't matter where it comes from or who it comes from. Um, when you say my ideas, I, I think in every script I've got my ideas, whether it's someone else's brought it to me or it's a book even or a play or anything that I'm adapting, uh, there's still always going to be I guess I should say originate ideas. from... Yeah. yeah, originating, no, it doesn't have to originate from me at all. Best idea wins, best story wins and I'm always looking for that great story. I don't I don't think that I, you know, know all the best stories and, you know, I, I think there's there's so many amazing stories out there. It's really just a matter of finding the time to... Yeah, tell them all. What does it feel like when you you work so hard and you write something and and we never get to see it? Um, yeah. I mean, yeah. it seems like, as you said, it's a miracle that a movie gets made in Hollywood. So a lot of your career you've spent writing things that we haven't got to see the result of versus if you wrote a book or something. Right. You know. Right. Well, look, I mean, you know, the, the, the operative word there is yet. You haven't seen them yet. There's always a chance, you know. There's a script right now that looks like it's going to be shot this year that I wrote 15 years ago, you know. So you never know. So you always hold out that little bit of hope. But beyond that, it's absolutely devastating, yeah, because you put your heart and soul into things and uh, uh, you. It's a screenplay is, 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 is not a finished product on its own. It's a blueprint for something else. And if you mm. never see that something else, it's devastating. Um, it's like designing architectural plans for this beautiful building and the building never gets built. You know, or what's the point? You've got you know, these things, these plans shelved away in a drawer that only you and a handful of others ever know about, you know. Um, and so, yeah, it's devastating. It's, uh, it's, it's something you learn to develop what I call passionate detachment. It's the only way to survive. So passionate detachment is you have to be absolutely passionately 100% devoted to everything you do but at the same time you have to be able to detach from it otherwise you'll just go drowning <laughs> you know the first time something gets rejected or you get rewritten or you know the miracle doesn't happen you know so passionate detachment is 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 the way i survive <laughs> in this industry i've also noticed um you know in in earlier in your career and for most writers when we saw a movie there was only one name as the writer mm. And now there's four, six, eight people, <laughs> story by, screenplay by, additional whatever. Yeah. Um, talk a little bit about how that's changed over here and how that affects you. Yeah, it, it's, a, it's a really controversial system. It's not the best system. It's the system we've got. Um, I think there could be better systems. Uh, it's basically there whenever more than one writer works on a project and thinks that they deserve some kind of credit, you go into arbitration at the, with the Writers Guild of America. And then they get three working writers to read all the different drafts and you submit statements, the writers submit statements and things, and then these three working writers decide who should get the credit. And they're, they're confined by a whole bunch of very arbitrary rules and percentages, like who contributes 50% or 33%, you know, or how do you... How do you figure that out? Where's the formula wow. for that, right? So it's really it's really something I believe you could be accurate about if you did it every day of your life as it was your job. And that's what I believe it should be, that three people living in Kentucky, somewhere far from Hollywood, have no business in this, you know, no allegiances, no politics, no, you know, nothing. No agenda other than it's their nine to five, Monday through Friday job and that they get really good at because they've been doing it for years and they've got their rules and they make their calculations. And that's how I think it should be done. But because here, you know, people's, like I say, ideologies get in, you know, they believe, well, first writers should always get credit regardless or, um, or, you know, well, that guy's a big writer, you know, he doesn't need the credit, you know, or, you know, there's, there's all these different politics that come into play, uh, sadly. And, and of course, you know, the working writers are really busy and don't really have time to actually read everything as, be as thoroughly as they should. And so, uh, again, I believe it was that your job to do it. If you were paid to do it, then, you know, you get a much more accurate uh, thing. But but anyway, the, the credits are all linked to bonuses, uh, so it's money out of your pocket. And then, of course, it's other jobs, you know. Um, and uh, you know, I've written movies, you know, that other people got credit for, you know, and they get work because people think they wrote that movie. And, you wow, know, really? Yeah, and they're surprised that, you know, they got 
you know, bad scripts from them because they thought they wrote that movie. Whereas, you know, <laughs> you make one or two phone calls and you realize, um, oh, no, someone else wrote that movie. <laughs> they just didn't get credit for it, you know. And, but people are lazy and they don't, you know, they just check IMDb and think it's 100% accurate. Wow. You know, so, yeah, like I say, it's a broken system and, uh, and, can, and it can affect you, yeah, really badly. And financially and, of course, uh, you know, your soul. <laughs> you know, yeah, when you work on something for a year and a half and, you know, your family knows you're working on it and it's taking you away from your family to work on it and then, you know, the, your name is nowhere on it, you know, even though every word is yours. So you mean you can actually lose complete credit on, oh, yeah. on yeah. a script you've written? Happens all the time, yeah. Wow. And that was the thing I learned. I thought it was just, it was me. And it's like, no, no, no. You're, it happens to everyone all the time. And that's, again, why I say the system is broken. It's just, uh, you know, it, it's it's not good. I think it should be changed. So the the Pirates movies that came after the first one, you're credited with the characters created by. Um, how much involvement did you have with any of them after the first one? Zero. Really? Yeah, yeah. Was I mean, that by choice or no, not really. Um, it's uh, uh, other writers had come on and uh, they're using the characters that I created. So yeah, I have to get that credit and I get a nice little check. It's great money, you know. You earn money for really doing nothing. Um, but yeah, so they they and they're just writing their scripts and and doing their thing and you know. So uh, you know, I get tickets to the premiere and a check. So yeah, what more could you ask for? <laughs> well, did you ever? want to be back in that world again or yeah yeah i was i was uh angling for it to to uh, do pirate six but then um they wanted to do a whole reboot and everything so i just kind of you know let it be but i had a good idea for what to do with jack that hadn't been done before and uh would have been something really special and something johnny would have been great at um but uh you know again stars didn't align now when we talk about all those writers credits are any of you in the same room at the same time ever? Have you – I mean, I know even with Australia there's three other co-writers including Baz Luhrmann. Do you, do you ever co-write in a specific way with people? No. No, it's always always on your own. Um, and, yeah, and the situations are always different. Uh, with Australia, uh, I was the first writer in, uh, broke, you know, all the story with Baz and, you know, we figured it out. Uh, it was a lot of fun. Uh, just sitting around going, why do we make movies? Who are we? What do we want to say about us and the country and, you know, as Australians and all that kind of stuff? You know, what genre should this be? You know, all the big, you know, questions. So the two of you came up with the whole sort of basic yeah. story. For I think it was a good 18 months I think I worked with him on that. And then as we were getting close to production, they brought in another guy and then he was on for a few months and then they brought in another guy and he was on for a few months and then they brought me back. <laughs> and so... Yeah, we were all just working with Baz, doing what Baz wanted at the time and all that kind of stuff. Um, but we never worked together. We all worked with Baz, but never yeah. the three of oh. us together. Oh. Yeah. So, but yeah, but uh, I'm trying to think of any other films. But I don't think I ever collaborated with anyone in a room. No, I don't think I've done that. No, because we're sitting in this lovely, I should say, um, in Stuart's office, which is in the back of his house, uh, lovely house in Calabasas. And it's like, oh, he's got all his movie posters on the walls, Pirates, G.I. Joe, 30 Days of Night, Derailed, Australia, what else? I didn't know you worked on 310 to Yuma. Yeah, no one does. That's that's the one that I got uh, oh. no credit on that I wrote every word of. Oh, no, really? <laughs> yeah. You see how it's got no credits on it? Yeah. <laughs> that's the only poster without any credits on it. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And then the two you directed oh, in Collateral and the two you directed, which we haven't got to yet, Tomorrow When the War Began and I, Frankenstein. Now talk about um, you said right from a young age you knew you wanted to make movies mm. and so directing was obviously going to be a part of that. Um, how did you end up finally getting to do that and, and did it live up to your expectations? Uh, yeah, I got to do it through blackmail. Um, <laughs> Uh, Chris Mapp, uh, who uh, runs a company uh, named uh, um, uh, Ambience, um, approached me. I'd known Chris actually since first grade at Knox. He was my first friend. And uh, he approached me with Tomorrow When the War Began uh, just to adapt as a book. And um, I turned him down and said no. And I said no. And he kept coming back at me for about six months. And um, I finally said, okay, well, I'll write it if you let me direct it. 
<laughs> so that was my blackmail. So it was like, okay, fine. And so um, wrote the script and then uh, and I'd been looking for something to direct. I had been uh, wanting to make that leap. I had been on set with a, a bunch of incredible directors and, you know, uh, going through film school with them basically yeah. uh, and learning what I wanted to do, how I wanted to be, you know, how to run a set, all that kind of stuff. And so I felt like I was ready and this was Australian. It was my wheelhouse. It was an action film. It was a great book, great series of books and um, and great characters. And so I felt like that was a, was the perfect vehicle for me. So, um, so yeah, so I said, yeah, okay, so I'll write it. And, uh, and so I actually got paid more for writing than I did to direct it. <laughs> and um, <laughs> then I... Uh, uh, they liked the script and then I started coming up with storyboards and posters and my visual, you know, uh, my vision for the film and all that and they liked all that kind of stuff and I think they just kind of kept watching me all the way through and seeing how I dealt with the actors. Could I talk to actors? Could I, you know, talk to crew, heads of department? Could I communicate what was in my head to people? And so uh, I kept, I guess, passed all those tests and they kept going, okay, 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 and on to the next one. So... So it was basically that. And, but it was basically also, you know, all the things that I'd learned on set. And, and I'd, I'd uh, asked a bunch of directors a bunch of questions and I had a lot of great practical wisdom uh, behind me. So I felt very comfortable. And, and it was just great. It was, it was so much fun. I mean, I had an awesome crew, fantastic cast, great story. And, uh, you know, and I was in charge of the script, obviously. And I could shoot exactly what I wanted and how I wanted. And, you know, it was the culmination of a lifelong dream. So it really lived up to what you were hoping it would. Yeah, yeah. The making of the film, putting it together, working with everyone, absolutely lived up to it. Where, where it would let me down was when uh, they tried to get a distributor here for it because um, we screened it here for, you know, a bunch of test screenings and the Americans just loved it, you know. And I think they really would have loved it all over the country if we'd been able to get a distributor behind it so that was yeah, soul crushing that I did it never came out here in theaters because I think it would have been a, a big hit here um and then of course we wanted to do the sequels but that uh, that didn't happen either and so at what point did I Frankenstein come to you that came um probably about three or four months after Tomorrow When the War Began came out in theaters um, I was just looking for the next thing, you know, to direct. And we'd, we were talking, Chris and I were talking about doing the Tomorrow sequels, but it just it kept being just talk, just talk, just talk. And I'd written outlines for the sequels and really wanted those to be my next films, but it just took too long and I had to, I had to work. Um, and so I had uh, met with the, this company that had the script, I Frankenstein, which was... Uh, basically, you know, the idea of Frankenstein's alive today and he's fighting all these monsters, um, which I thought was a cool concept because I've always loved the Frankenstein creature uh, because it's it, at its heart, the creature is, is all of us. You know, it's the most alone person in the world and all he wants is love. He just wants someone like him to love and just leave me alone. That's, you know, and it's just such a beautiful uh, character in that sense and I thought that'd be a great thing to put in the middle of an action movie. And so <laughs> my pitch was, it's a love story. <laughs> it was always a love story. And they kept saying no. And then, but they kept <laughs> calling me back saying, what is it again? I said, it's a love story. <laughs> and then, fine. No, no, I was like, yeah, it's a love story in an action movie. And they're like, okay, fine. So, you know, they, uh, they did a deal with me in a couple of weeks. And, uh, and so I, I was off and running, rewriting that script and then, uh, and then directing that down in Australia, which I was, was a part of it as well. Cause I, you know, I, I love Australian crews. I love shooting in Australia and I just want, to bring more work down there because I want those people to keep working. I don't want them to ever be sitting on their hands, not yeah. working. Yeah. So we brought the film down there and uh, had a great time making it down in Melbourne. And that was great. Great. Again, fantastic crew, fantastic fun, so much fun making that film. Uh, but again, in the release of that, the post-production really of that one, that was, that was the hard one because they, they really took it out of my hands in the end. And Really? Yeah, just cut the crap out of it. It was... It was, you know, the, the film I wrote, the film I shot, the film I edited was a big superhero origin story. It was Batman Begins, you know, and epic and all this stuff and, uh, and a lot of heart to it. And so they, they cut it down to within an inch of its life, I think. <laughs> I mean, it still works, I think, as a film, but there was, it was so much more to it. It was a love story, you know. So that was deeply soul-crushing <laughs> for me. And, and that must be, in the end, the toughest thing about being a writer and then a director, is that it, it is a collaborative art form and you're not always going to be able to 
get to to do exactly what you want to do. Have you ever thought about just writing books or? <laughs> no, I, don't, I wouldn't know how to write a book. Uh, it's a whole <laughs> different skill. Um, no, uh, look, yeah, you know, the goal is obviously Final Cut and that's what all the big directors have. And at that point, you know, uh, that you fall on your own sword. People like it or not, it's your film and you made it exactly the way you want to make it. So yeah. that that's, that's where I want to get to and that's where, you know, all directors want to get to. But there's very few people that actually have that power. Um, but we all keep working towards it in the hope that one day we'll get there. <laughs> <laughs> um, you also had the opposite experience where uh, I think it was – G.I. Joe, they gave you six weeks to write an entire script. Was that right? Before the writer's strike? Yeah, writer's guild strike, yeah. So it was more three weeks oh, I did that. Wow. Yeah, that was crazy. Um, they, they called me six weeks before the strike and said, you know, we're doing G.I. Joe, we're shooting in the spring and can you write something? And But at that stage the director, Steve Summers, had his own idea of the film. He had his own outline and he wanted me to do that. And it took him about three took me about three weeks to get him off of that because it was just the wrong idea. It was Pakistani terrorists and suitcase nukes and very much real world things. And I kept saying, "G.I. Joe is a fantasy. G.I. Joe are toys. You know, you, it's got to be about <laughs> things that exist only in a G.I. Joe world, like um, uh, what we ended up using in there." The I forget what they're called now, the microbots, the, the stuff that eats metal. You know, that's a G.I. Joe thing, you know, and that's not obviously a real thing, but it's something that could exist in a G.I. Joe world. So, yeah, three weeks to get him off of that idea and then three weeks basically to pitch him on the new idea and, uh, and write that script because I knew, I knew we were, uh, we were going to go on strike. Everyone knew. Um, and then we were on strike the entire time that they were in pre-production. They greenlit that first draft and... Uh, the strike ended on the day we started shooting. <gasps> so I ran down to the set and just started really writing the film at that point. And so I was writing basically an hour before we shot scenes and then two hours, and, you know, three hours, four hours, basically working for months to get ahead on that film. And eventually I, I, th I think I got to about two or three days ahead on that film. But we originally we shot that. I wrote that as we shot it. <laughs> wow. It's a, it's a miracle it makes sense, that film, um, and a miracle <laughs> it's any good. And I think it, it's a fun film. It's a really fun film, I think. Yeah. They all did a really good job. And obviously they've made tons of sequels from them now. So, um, yeah, I was, I was very pleased. But I remember saying at the time, this is no way to make a movie, any movie, let alone a $200 million <laughs> summer blockbuster. But it's what we had. It's the conditions we had. So, you know, <laughs> we had to go with it. Learned a lot. Made a lot of friends. And, uh, yeah, learned a lot about filmmaking on that set. And you See, that one I was there every day, okay, oh, just, okay. just every single day, obviously. You know, in we were shooting in Downey. We were shooting uh, – uh, we went to Prague. We, you know, they shot in Paris. It, it, it was all over that one, and I was there for pretty much all of that because we were going, going, going. Um, I remember they called me up. I was, oh god, they called me up from Sunset saying, "Quick, we need a line. We need a line. We're shooting." I was like half asleep. I'm like, "Oh, say this." And they're like, "Okay, great, great." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was literally like that. That kind of craziness. Uh, oh wow! But also that kind of. That's a lot of fluidity. power, Stuart. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and now you like, can slip the DVD in and go, oh, I remember that night when I woke right. up. And <laughs> it's, it's that idea of you say it here, they say it there. It comes out there. You know, it's, uh, uh, but it was a lot of fun too because it, it, it really taught me that nothing is sacred uh, in, in screenwriting. Nothing is sacred. No word is sacred. You know, the best idea has to win. And I think that's a, that's a you've you got to have a plan, but it's good to be open always to the best idea because that's where the magic comes. Um, you recently you you worked on Deadline Gallipoli, which was a TV miniseries, I guess. Yeah, four yeah, part it mini was, wasn't it? How much of it did you end up writing? Oh, uh, I wrote one episode of that. Okay. There were four of us. Uh, you know, we worked for many many months uh, in a room together, uh, figuring out what those episodes were. I mean, I think between the four of us, we all kind of figured out the story of these journalists, did all the research and all that kind of stuff. And then by the time we had figured out what would go on what episode and all that, we just kind of divided it up then and just did one episode each. Yeah, it was a lot of fun, that that project. Yeah, I should say to people who aren't familiar with it, it was an Australian miniseries of Sam Worthington um, uh, about Gallipoli, which is not as well known, I guess, in America as it is in Australia where all the Australian soldiers yeah. were. 
It's really about um, the journalist uh, that that uh, covered the Gallipoli campaign. It was in 1915 down in southern Turkey in the Dardanelles, and uh, these these journalists were really the first ones to kind of get the truth out about what was really happening in Gallipoli because the military was selling one story which was completely fake, and uh, these journalists saw the death and destruction and absolute waste of human life that was going on every day, and uh, ended up having to smuggle out letters that told the truth of what was really going on and then actually their efforts ended up ending that that doomed campaign which was you know eight months uh stuck on a beach on a rocky headland beach in in, in gallipoli with no chance of ever breaking out so it was a really heroic effort by these guys to kind of uh get past the senses and and uh, fight for truth you know which is obviously you know so important even today you know that that's something that'll never go away. So it just seemed to be a very relevant, kind of topical way into a story that we as Australians know very well, and we showing an angle that maybe we didn't know that well. When you um, write a script now that you have directed, does it change the way you write, knowing that somebody's going to have to actually direct yeah, that? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's no no better no better school for screenwriting than directing. Right, because you st- you really under- start to understand what is going to make it and what's not going to make it, uh, what uh, is going to translate and what's not going to translate, um, because of course they are two completely different mediums. Uh, so yeah, it's it's a great way to learn how to write <laughs> uh, if you get fortunate enough to direct, because yeah, you really see, yeah, uh, you know, you really learn, start to learn instinctively, you know, what and what will work well as opposed to what will not work well, what will not com- what will communicate well, what won't, all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, absolutely. It's made me, directing has made me a much better writer. I'll say that. And do you want to keep directing? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, you know, I made a, a, a conscious choice after I Frankenstein that um, I just wanted to be around for my boys. You know, it's, it's very much a 24 7 job. Um, and um, I have two boys who mean the world to me and uh yeah i just wanted to be around for them as they were navigating all their their teenage years and so uh i think once the, they go off to college once once they leave me then uh, i'll get back in directing because i love directing and i love working with people and uh yeah lo- love to get back into it but for right now i'm just very very happy writing and writing for other directors and and uh, all sorts of things that i'm doing so i'm very happy you know, doing this but yeah eventually I do want to get back to directing and I know um you've been incredibly supportive with Australians in film since um we all kind of got together on that many years ago and you've been a mentor and really tried to give back a lot can you talk about why that's important to you I remember you telling a story at the Indigenous LA dinner um that somebody took you to lunch when you first arrived and you didn't forget about that yeah yeah took me to lunch and got me a subscription to variety and hollywood reporter it was awesome and uh yeah and he didn't know me i didn't know him it just was asked um and he did and it was great um so yeah look i just believe it's a you know hollywood's such a big place with so many people that uh you know er, everyone needs needs a hand everyone you know and if you can give a hand you, you should and uh and so it's just, yeah, it's just always been a, a part of uh, of who I am to kind of, you know, give back if I can, you know, if, if I feel like I can, if, I, if I've got the time, I've got the energy. Um, so I'm always meeting with uh, writers, up-and-coming writers or Australians, really in any, any fields, actors. I meet a lot with um, who just want to meet and talk about the industry and, uh, you know, get a sense of it, I guess, you know, and get a sense of the kind of people in there and what to expect and things like that. So I'm always always happy to do that if I can. That's the interesting thing with you being um, you have a relatively solitary job, the writing part, but yet you're very much still you, – you, you do know all the Aussies and you are part of that community, right? Is That's a conscious effort obviously. I mean you work with some of them as actors, as sure. a director too, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but uh, yeah, I, I I love Australians. <laughs> you know, I'm Australian. I just uh, it's a great community, and and I think it's a very supportive community, and and I love that. I, I I think probably the 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 worst part of Australian culture to me is the tall poppy syndrome, and um, you know anything anything I can do to f- combat that and crush that, <laughs> I think is a good thing. You know, so I think uh, helping to create this atmosphere of encouragement, this idea of you know, you should strive for the best you can be, you know, and go for it. And if I can help you 
let me know and I'll be there for you. I've got your back. You know, I think that's just a, just a much better human place to be, you know. Uh, so I'm, I'm it, it's something that I, I saw a lot of tall poppy. I, I, I still see it today a lot. Mm. Um, so I'm always raining against that just because I just believe it's just uh, it's not a very nice part of our culture. Right. One thing I always ask everybody in the podcast is if you have any theories about why so many Australians have been so successful in this business over here because it is a relatively small country and, um, and you know, back when you started, it wasn't like this. <laughs> yeah, there was there was no one over here uh, really when I when I came. Um, uh, I was uh, I, I don't, I'm not sure. I'm trying to think why. I mean, look, there's something about our our cinematographers, you know, and the whole camera department. We just have some great kind of apprenticeship system going on there where we're just teaching all the right tricks because we make you know obviously the best cinematographers in the world. Mm. Um, actors, I think it's it's uh, there's something about uh you know having the grit to kind of come over here uh and and audition and uh you know have things like visas hanging over your head and uh i just uh, maybe that gives you an extra you want it more you know to get here you've got to really want it whereas if you're american well you just you know get in your car and you drive down and you see if it works out you know um so i think there's there's a hungriness uh, to having come from, and again, such a small country, which, you know, d- relatively doesn't have as big as industry as I think we could have. You know, I think we could sustain a much bigger industry down there than we currently have. So, you know, people are eager to, eager to work, eager to prove themselves and, uh, and uh, you know, if they can make it over here uh, to audition or to get work, you know, they've, they've already fought to be here, so they're going to make the most of it. They're going to, you know, give everything they've got and they're not going to take it for granted. So I think it's probably something with that. I know that's how it was for me, you know, getting over here. I felt very fortunate to be here and, um, uh, you know, I was not going to let this opportunity go. So um, what are you working on now? What can we see next? Well, a new film, uh, <laughs> I have a new film coming out uh, this year called Danger Close, uh, The Battle of Long Tan. So uh, very excited about that. That's been something, again, one that I've been wanting to do really since high school. Uh, since I first learned about that battle, it's the the biggest battle that. Was that the one you mentioned earlier in the interview that you wrote a Vietnam story? No, no, it was another one completely. That oh. was about tunnel rats. Uh, this was just this was different. Um, this was the biggest battle the Australians fought uh, in the Vietnam War, and uh, it was a four-hour battle, 108 guys against about two and a half thousand NBA, uh, and they uh, they won the battle, and um, it's just an incredible story, and just. Uh, I just think a, a really needed, much needed reminder of what that generation went through. You know, these 19, 20-year-olds conscripted, half of them in the battle were conscripted, didn't want to be there, didn't ask to be there, were sent there by their government because of their birthdays and uh, and really, uh, you know, stood up for each other and, um, and saved each other. And uh, we don't have many stories from the Vietnam War, uh, which is sad to me because uh, you know all those blokes went over there, you know, and yeah. and fought and died. And so uh, it's a big film. It's good. It's 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 uh, it's not the kind of film that you'd really ever see coming out of Australia. So that's always exciting because I'm I always I'm a firm believer that we can make any kind of film we want to make. We just have to want to make it and get it made. Uh, so who's uh, in it? Um, Travis Fimmel, Luke Bracey, Richard Roxburgh. Um, oh, great cast! Yeah, b- fantastic bunch of guys. Um, uh, Aaron Glenane. Um, I'm blanking on a bunch. They're, they're, they're all fantastic, especially all the younger guys. They're they're a great crop of up and coming Australian talent there. And uh, so yeah, so that's coming out. And then uh, just have a couple of films that are heading towards production here right now. Uh, and uh, and then I'm doing a a pilot right now for uh, an Australian company called Playmaker. Oh. Which I'm very excited about. Uh, is it shooting here or back in Australia? No, no, we, we're not at shooting yet. I'm just I'm writing it at the moment. Mm. But yes, it, it will shoot uh, down in Australia or New Zealand. Yeah. Yeah, you had about nine things listed on IMDb as um, <laughs> you know upcoming or in you know in some form of you know script or post or pre or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> One thing that just really surprised me when I was reading up on you. 
you co-wrote the Bat Out of Hell musical. <laughs> Is yeah. that true? Yeah, yeah. Bat Out of Hell. Right. Does not seem to go with the whole credits I was looking right. at. Right. So How did that happen? So that happened. I've always been uh, a Bat Out of Hell fan. Always loved it. Uh, Australia and England, uh, that yeah. album was huge. Yeah, we all loved Meatloaf right? from that album. Yeah. yeah. So, um, uh, God, when I, I, I think it was probably 16 or 17 years ago. For some reason, I started listening to Bat Out of Hell 1 and 2 in my car just over and over and over and the story just started coming to me uh, from the lyrics and the songs and everything. And so I approached Meatloaf, who was at the same agency I was, um, and I was like, have you ever thought about doing a musical, you know, with this? Because uh, these songs are so, you know, they're just so visual and they tell a story and here's the story. And he's like, oh, wow, yeah, it's great. He's like, well, look, I, I, I don't own the songs. They were all owned by Jim Steinman, who wrote them all. So let me put you in touch with Jim. So I got in touch with Jim and it turned out that uh, Jim had been wanting to do a musical for Bad Out of Hell since he wrote Bad Out of Hell. Uh, but his version was this kind of weird post-apocalyptic uh, Peter Pan story with Hook and Tinkerbell and all this kind of stuff. And so um, it took many years to get him off that, uh, <laughs> essentially, because it just, as I said to him, you know, his songs deserve their own story. Don't put your songs onto someone else's story, you mm. know. Um, uh, so I came up with this story, which is kind of about the same things, which is basically eternal youth. It's something that Jim is obsessed with, eternal youth and youth versus age and all this kind of stuff and what it means to be young and 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 how age is a state of mind and all that kind of stuff, really, you know, when you get down to it. And so I just started uh, working with him and these producers came on and... Um, I started working with them and uh, just uh, kept writing it and writing it and rewriting it and then Jim would change it back to Peter Pan and I would change it back again <laughs> and change it back and, and finally it got to the place where we got uh, you know the money together and uh, we put it up. Uh, it started in Manchester and uh, crowds just went nuts for it, loved it. And so we took it to the West End where it's been ever since for about a year now or so. And uh, it's been selling out there. So um, that must have been thrilling for you. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. To finally go there, I went there last year, about a year ago, to go see it, uh, and just uh, it was just surreal. Again, something I'd been on for years and years and years and years trying to get done. Um, uh, to see it up there on stage with people singing these amazing songs and uh, telling the story mm. that I'd come up with was uh, yeah, just and, and just probably a joy. thinking back to that boy growing up listening to <laughs> yeah. Meatloaf, thinking. How did I get here? This right? is amazing. Yeah, yeah. Power of creation, right? So, um, you know, you just got to stick with things, you know. I think that's kind of been the defining thing so far for me is just I, I stick with things, you know, and I, I just keep at it <laughs> until someone finally, you know, comes to their senses <laughs> and makes it. Um, well, that's a good attitude to have. Yeah, you know, you got you to have it. You got to believe in what you do. You know, you can't let all the the haters and naysayers get to you. You can't you can't let the, those voices get inside your head. You know, you have to believe in yourself, and you have to you know work as hard as you can. But yeah, you have to you have to trust that what you're doing is right. Is that uh, is that the sort of advice you would give somebody listening who really wants to be a screenwriter? Yeah, yeah, and that you are a writer if you write. You know, I meet a lot of uh, up and coming writers who don't identify as writers who just don't, oh, I haven't had anything made yet. I'm, you know, it's like, no, if you're writing, you're a writer, <laughs> you know, it's, uh, it's really, really that simple. And there was, I remember there was a huge change for me when I started identifying as a writer, when I started, you know, putting it down on forms and things, you know, just uh, what do you do? I'm a writer. You know, if something as simple as that just puts it out there in the universe uh, that that's who you are and that's what you do. And, and, and then the universe responds. So you know, have the courage to, to, to believe in yourself that you are a writer. Then you are, if you are writing, then you are a writer. It doesn't matter if you've sold anything or sold nothing. You're a writer. It doesn't matter if you had anything made or not. You're still a writer. You've been writing. So keep writing, you know, because that's, that's what's worked for me. Great. Well, on that note, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. What a great story. <laughs> um, can't wait to see... Um, the movie, give it a plug again. What's it called? Uh, Danger Close, The Battle of Long Tan. I think it's coming out in August, which is the uh, anniversary of the battle. Oh, wow. Uh, which was 966. So that would be the, the 42nd, 52nd anniversary. Wow. Yeah, long time ago. Well, mm. I'm glad you made it. So Yeah, me too. Yeah, I'm really, really proud of that and, and um, hope, hope Australians go see it and uh, 
because they should learn about their history. They should know about it and appreciate what these guys did. Thank you so much for everything. My pleasure. All right. Anytime. It's so refreshing to talk to someone who has accomplished so much in Hollywood but has remained incredibly modest. You can really hear his passion shine through and for many Aussies who aren't in front of the camera, their voice is one that's rarely heard. I'm sure there are a few young budding writers listening who may just come up with the next Disney blockbuster one day and have Stuart to thank for inspiring them. Until next time, that's all from Aussies in Hollywood. Aussies in Hollywood was presented by me, Jenny Cooney, and recorded in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Audio production was by Nick Slater, and executive producer was Jenny Goggin. For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au, download the app, or look me up on iTunes.